We are, um, we have been, we're in a section of John's gospel that has been high drama, uh, just astonishing literary beauty, and today we're going to come across another section of his gospel where John just brings the story to life, so I'm super excited about what we're going to talk about today. To give you basic, let me give you just a, to get our bearings, the timeline is this, the, this last section of, of the last half of John's gospel happens in a 12-hour period. The first half happens over the course of three years. The last half happens over the course of 12 hours, basically, where Jesus is arrested a couple weeks ago. We had the arrest in the garden that happened around midnight. Um, and then a few couple, well, the week after that, we talked about the interrogation of Jesus. He was brought to one of, the, uh, one of the high priests that, that year, a man who was uh, the uh, deposed high priest, who still wielded power in the back rooms of Israel, and he was interrogated by that high priest. And then uh, at about 3 a.m., he was sent to the, the current high priest for a grand jury indictment. John skips over this whole section because he knows we already know everything about that from the other gospel stories. And John is trying to fill in some blanks for us. And here he starts to fill in one of those big blanks in, in the actual trial of Jesus, part one, before the Roman officials. This is where Jesus is being brought before Pontius Pilate, uh, where he will be tried officially. And so, uh, with that, can I ask you to stand one last time out of respect for the reading of God's word we stand for, out of respect for God, the reader, or God, the speaker, right? I'm the reader, not the speaker. God is the speaker because we believe that God is speaking to us through his word. So Bible says, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. So now let us all listen intently together as a people to God's inerrant word. This is John 18, starting at verse 28. And then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. And so Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. And Pilate said, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, But it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. And this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. And so Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? And Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. And then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. And everyone who hears the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, What is truth? 
And after he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and he told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, we thank you for your word, uh, how it speaks to us even now, Lord. And so we pray that as we look through this, you would show us where we are, where we are a bunch of self-righteous religionists. We pray that you would show us where we are a bunch of cynical secularists. And we pray, Lord, that we might hear and respond to the peace and truth that Jesus speaks to us through this word. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Thanks, buddy. I, like to, I always like to say that balance is the most elusive quality known on the face of the earth. <laughs> when you think about it, you think how true that is, because for the most part, if you look at human history, human history is just, just this awful picture of people swinging back and forth on opposite sides of the pendulum as they roll through and, and reach one extreme error and then realize that they start swinging back the other direction and, and end up on the other side of the pendulum in the exact opposite error. And the only time we ever really see balance is that brief minute when we swing through the middle. It's almost like, did you see that? Balance. I saw it as we went through. And that's true in the church, too. That's true in, in, in everything. And there's two super bad wrong ways to, re- to respond to God. One is, is called, what we call legalism, which means that you, we come to believe that by being obedient to the law or by doing some ritual or by doing something that, that we are therefore making ourselves, uh, that we are making ourselves right before God and that by our own efforts, by obeying the law, by obeying these rituals, that we will, will earn heaven on our own merit. That's one super wrong way to relate to, to God and to revealed truth. The other way, on the other end of the scale, is to say that we don't have to obey the law at all. There is no law. There is no cosmic lawgiver, And so therefore, it's totally up to us to do what we want, to do what works. Uh, there's a certain philosophy of, of called utilitarianism that whatever, whatever the ends justify the means. And we need to, what we need to do is figure out what works to get the end desired result. If you ever watched the Breaking Bad series, utilitarianism is the philosophy of Breaking Bad. They are doing what they need to do to, do, to reach the desired end, of being a, a, a provider for family, having money, having wealth, and, and, and anything is, is on the, anything's on the table to do to get those ends. Or uh, we are free to just do whatever we want that makes us feel good because since there is no divine lawgiver, since there is no divine reality, we are free to determine what makes us feel good. And so, if whatever it is, if it feels good, do it. And that is the extent of the law. And the thing is, here's the thing, is that, is that legalism and libertinism, being at full, thinking we're at full liberty, are two sides of the same hot coin minted in hell. 
They are both opposite and erroneous reactions to revealed truth. And the beauty of John's gospel is that in his art, artistry, in, the, in, his, in his mastery of literary beauty and high drama, he's able to bring those awful realities to light through teaching, uh, through presenting us this drama of his gospel. And no, almost nowhere is it highlighted next to each other as, as it is in this section. This here is an epic picture of the polar extremes of human sin right by each other, side by side, and of Jesus who speaks truth and peace into that cesspool of human morality. Uh, and so here's the big idea. Big idea. This is what Jesus is trying, John, Holy Spirit, is trying to teach us above everything else in this passage is this, is that, is that self-righteous religion makes us moral monsters and secular cynicism makes us moral evaders, but Jesus speaks peace and truth. We'll read that one more time. Self-righteous religion makes us moral monsters, and secular cynicism makes us moral evaders, but Jesus speaks peace and truth. And we'll look at that one little piece at a time. Uh, first, self-righteous religion makes us moral monsters. Look at verses 28 through 31. And then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they wouldn't be defiled, but could eat the Passover. And so Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. And Pilate said to them, Well then, take him yourselves, judge him by your own law. And the Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. And so right at the end there, they really kind of let their, let their colors show what they really need to be done here is they need someone, they need the authority of the Roman judicial system to put Jesus to death. They're not able to do it on their own. And, and, and John, who loves in part, part and parcel of John's mastery of drama, of literary beauty, his ability to present these awful ironies, and he does it all the way through his gospel. And here, here the big ironies are, are um, you know, on the surface of things. That they're, It says that it's early morning. So these guys are like, they're literally rushing, trying to rush through this because the Passover is coming. And they want to get this done so that they're able to eat the Passover. And so in, in their rush to it, they're literally, uh, they're, they're seeking, as, as, they, as they are rushing to make the Passover on time, they are unwittingly handing over the Paschal Lamb, the Lamb of God, to, to Pilate. There's like a big iron, irony theme that they don't under, understand. Um, you know, an awful part, at the, end of this, at the end of the gospel, it says that they call for Barabbas, who is a, a real live political insurrectionist, and the irony is that as they bring Jesus to Pilate under the trumped-up false charge of being a political insurrectionist, at the end they ask for the release of a bona fide political insurrectionist. Big ironies. But the biggest one is the most subtle one. And, and that's, 
The subtle one is that they are, it says they won't, they won't go into Pilate's house. They won't go into the praetorium. Because, why? They're worried about becoming ritually defiled as they are in the midst of uh, a conspiracy to murder the Son of God. And they cannot, they, they, have, they are oblivious to it. They are oblivious to it. Uh, you know, the, what they're concerned about, here's what they're worried about. Uh, most, most of the ritual impurity that they could encounter becoming part, or having, having associated with a Gentile would be, would be taken care of by a bath at sunset so they could still go ahead and, and have the Passover. The only thing that would defile them for seven days is coming in contact with a dead body. Uh, and so there was this irrational thought amongst the Pharisees and the Sadducees that the Gentiles would dispose of their abortions in, in basically in their trash cans. And if they, if they went into a Gentile's house, they would just kind of have to assume that they would become ritually defiled by this potential abortion and therefore uh, they wouldn't go in. And so they are, they are, they are overly concerned with the possibility of being defiled by this kind of obscure ritual law, the, the, they're straining out the gnats, as we said in the law reading earlier today, while at the same time they are all in conspiracy to commit murder by, by political expediency. The camel, they are just chomping down on this camel right in front of everybody, for everybody to see. And they have, the, the, the worst part is that they seem to be oblivious to it. Their self-righteousness, their focus on religion as on the essence of religion being, keeping this, these minute laws, their focus on that has effectively blinded them to what Jesus calls the weightier matters of the law, love, mercy, Justice, and they are engaged in murdering the Son of God. Um, and why is that? Because, because the little minutia of the law, our ability to like make a checklist and then check it off. That what does that do? That makes it all about us. It's what we can do. It's totally self-righteous, and what we're seeing is this picture about how being a self-righteous religionist where it ends up. In extreme cases, it ends up with you being a moral monster, committing murder thinking that you're serving God. I mean, we can see this present-day stage, right? We, look at, we can point fingers and say, well, ISIS is a huge... Uh, that's what's happened to them. They have, they're so intent on re- reading the minutia of the Quran and being holy in that way that they have, they have lost sight of all love and justice and mercy and are literally burning people to death and beheading people thinking they're serving God. The church, to a lesser extent, we've been guilty of that in the past where the Bible has been used to justify all kinds of atrocity. Uh, and we can, look to, uh, you know, we can look to ourselves to current churches who seek, uh, who, who have an undue... Um, reliance upon the law, or they, or they, they, they see, they don't understand the use of the law as a way of seeing our sin. They see the use of the law 
as a way of perfecting holiness and making ourselves righteous before God. And it ends up creating uh, self-righteousness, right? I mean, if it's all about the law and keeping the law, then you're better than sinners, and then you have every right to look down on sinners, right? The church specializes in this, especially uh, easy targets like people who are engaged in sexual sin. If sexual sin is the super bad sin, then we can, and keeping the law is what's so important, then we have every right to look down on people who have sexual brokenness and condemn them rather than be servants, while at the same time, we are radically prideful, radically self-righteous, and, 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 and damaging people. That stuff happens all the time. But I was thinking about this, about, like, how does this hit us? I mean, that last one hits us <laughs> to some degree. I mean, all of us are self-righteous in certain ways with, towards sin. But there's, there is, as I was thinking about this, there is a special, uh, there's a special awfulness that's unique to us in the Reformed Church. <laughs> and that is this. Is we... Um, We, we get the gospel right, we get a precision about the gospel, and then we use that righteous, that, that understanding of we have the gospel right as a, as a way to justify judging other Christians who might not have as much clarity. I mean, it's, and, and, and it causes us to, be, to come off as super self-righteous. I, had, I heard a, no lie, true story, conversation, uh, so I was on Facebook, somebody was like, yeah, so-and-so, he's reformed, and the person replied, that's not possible because he's not a total ass. That was their response. It just didn't make sense to them because in that, in that posture, when we take the gospel and use it to lord it over the evangelical masses, it causes self-righteousness to, and ugliness to just seep out of our pores. And in essence, we're doing the same thing that the Pharisees are doing. Maybe not as grievous, but it's the same principle. And that's towards the outside. Inside the camp, same thing. Inside the camp, when that attitude of intellectual superiority starts to take over, you know what it does? It makes other people inside feel self-insecure. I've had, I can't tell you how many people I've had come and talk to me and say, or I've heard from the grapevine, I didn't even feel comfortable trying to share at the Bible study because I would feel like I might say something wrong. Or, 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 they, or, or, or they feel like that if they don't have all the precision down and if they are not drawing these theological lines extra sharp in the same way as everybody else and they're out of step with culture, that somewhere they'll be thought down upon. And then what humans do, what we do in, in, that, in response to that, out of fear of rejection, is we tend to try to take that persona on. And then we have a whole group of people who are all pretending to know more than they really do to impress people who don't know as much either. And, and it creates a cesspool of culture that we roll around in. Sometimes we sin by drawing our theological lines too blurry. That's true. Sometimes we sin by drawing them too sharp and holding everyone to account. 
Do you know what my dream is? My crazy dream? My crazy dream, here it is, is to have a reformed church without the reformed culture. <laughs> to have a reformed church without the toxic reformed culture. What if instead of lording it over the church, instead of being masters of the evangelical world, we were instead servants? What if we just went out, we were trying to pick fights, we weren't trying to make everybody, like correct everybody on their first misstep, but we just to go out into the broader church and to be servants, to make relationships, to bless people, to be ready to answer questions when they're asked or to give like comments. I listen, this is this is a true story. I went to was invited to go to a Roman Catholic church. Okay? Uh, and and Calvin said the church is within her. Whatever we may disagree with the Roman church on, on matters of justification and theology, we all agree that there are saints in the church, in the Catholic church. Everyone, Calvin on down, everybody says that. And I went in and I said, I'm going to go in. I'm not going to go in and like, you know, go in as a warlord and tell everybody how they're wrong or whatever. I'm going to go in. And really, it was a Q&A. People just wanted to answer me questions and know how, what Protestant theology was all about and what I thought. And so I went in seeking to be a servant, to, to just answer questions. And the conversation gets started in this second group. And, 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 I, and I, this, uh, this one woman, she says, we're talking about repentance and salvation. She's, and she's, she just goes, pops off with this. She goes, well, you know what I think? I think, that, I think that living a totally righteous life your whole life and then sinning right at the end and being sent to hell for it's unfair. And then she kind of retreated a little bit, like, am I going to get the smackdown for saying that from all everybody else? And, and I was like, I was like something's happening here. And I started praying in my mind. And then something else came up, and she looks at me, and not even kidding, she looks at me and she says, well, my daughter's an evangelical, and she says that Jesus died to satisfy the wrath of God. What do you think about that? <laughs> talk about teeing, talk about teeing up a Protestant theologian, you know? It's like, well, what do I think about that? Hold on. <laughs> I go, let me share with you Romans chapter 3. We just cracked it open. Romans chapter 3, the first part of it, talks about the state of humanity, that we are sinful to the core and, 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 and all have been judged unworthy by the law. And then Romans chapter 3, that Jesus came and died to satisfy the wrath of God voluntarily on our behalf so that God could then be free to justify us, to declare us righteous, and bring us into heaven, even though we're still sinners. It's the only solution to a problem of how a holy God can justify sinful people. And I look at this woman, she's like, and I go, and, and I said, you should read that. And when you, when, you, when you understand what it's saying about what Jesus did, it should make you cry. And tears start sliding down her face. Because you should be so grateful. You should understand what Jesus has done for us and cry. And out of that deep understanding of his sacrifice, his voluntary sacrifice for us, that's where discipleship comes from. That's how we live out the gratitude that we have for what Jesus has accomplished for us. 
Now, if I had gone in there as the Protestant overlord, would I have ever had a chance to say that or any of those things or any of that to even happen? If I'd have said, oh, I'm not going to go speak at a Roman Catholic church, would that have ever, ever happened? No. And so maybe, maybe it would be better if we could just all calm down and think of ourselves as servants instead of masters. Amen? Point two. So point one, if self-righteous religion makes us moral monsters, point two, secular cynicism makes us moral evaders. We evade it. We evade truth. Look at 33 through 38. And so Pilate entered his headquarters again and called on Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? And Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might be, not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. And then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. And Jesus said, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born. For this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, What is truth? That is a... Uh, in one sense, a shockingly modern thing to say. It took, it took, it took uh, philosophers another 2,000 years, really past Pilate, to really hammer, that, hammer that, 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 that argument out. What is truth? We can't even know what truth is. Although it's actually a lot older than we think. Um, Pilate asked Jesus two basic questions. Are you a king? Meaning, are you a political insurrectionist? Are you a threat to Rome? And should I kill you? And two, he said, what have you done? Why have you been brought here before me? Two different questions. And Jesus answers, answers the first question. Are you a king? He says, uh, yes, but no. <laughs> it's a weird response that he gives in the Gospels. He says, you say that I am. It's kind of a, uh, it's, uh, it's an ancient Near Eastern way of saying, yes, but I wouldn't say it like that. In other words, yes, I am a king, but not how you're thinking of it. Pilate's thinking political uh, kingdom. He's thinking uh, revolutionary. He's thinking someone who wants to take over and cause uh, a revolution, which is going to cost me my job and maybe my head. And so if Jesus is a king over a kingdom in an earthly sense, that's bad. But Jesus says, I am a king, but not the way you're thinking. You need to think bigger than that. I am not the king uh, of an earthly kingdom, and so therefore I am not a political insurrectionist. Answer to your first question. Uh, but he says, I am who the Spirit is now prompting you to recognize the undercurrent. Second question Pilate says, what have you done to get here? And Jesus actually answers this question. He says, no, I'm not a king. I'm not a political insurrectionist. But what I have done, what I am, is I am a witness to the truth of reality. I'm a witness to the truth, to religious truth. And because the world hates the light, 
they're trying to stamp it out. And guess what, Pilate? They're trying to use you to do it. See this high drama? Isn't this crazy? I mean, match this up against any epic from the ancient world, any, any story. This is, this is every bit as good, literarily, and it's, and it's historical. This actually happened. <laughs> it's high drama. Pilate, this is showing, this is putting Pilate in a, in a situation of crisis. He's going to have to make a decision, and he doesn't want to. He's doing everything he can to, let, to, to avoid having to sentence Jesus. And, and, it, and Jesus keeps pushing him. And the Jews keep pushing him. The world around, everything is pushing on him to f- make a decision. It's the last thing he wants to do. But what, what does Pilate know up to this point? Up to this point, Pilate knows for sure that this whole thing is a sham. The other Gospels tell us that right away, Pilate... The, the, the seasoned politician knows that this is because they are jealous. He says in Matthew's Gospel, 20, chapter 27, says, and Pilate knew that he was brought because they were jealous. They were afraid of him. He hadn't done anything, and he knew they hadn't done anything. Second thing Pilate knows is that Jesus is innocent. How do we know that? Because as soon as he, he ends this interview, he goes straight out and says, it's nothing, this man has no guilt. So he knows it's a sham. He knows Jesus is innocent. But he's experienced politically, uh, and he knows that a lot of times that, none of that matters. <laughs> Honestly. None of that matters. And so his response to Jesus is, when Jesus says, I've come to be witness to the truth, his response is, what is truth? Now we, so we're 21st century people. We want to... We want, to see, we want to see in Pilate the existentialist philosopher who says there is no vertical aspect to life. There is no knowledge of God. There is no absolute knowledge of who God is. So it's all horizontal. All we know is about this earth. And so therefore, there can't be any capital T truth. There can't be any overarching narrative of reality. Truth is either what you say it is or you just can't know. What is truth? He's a little bit that, but he's also, as I said, that seasoned politician who has, he's a hardened realist, and he has seen this scenario play out over and over and over and over again, this endless parade of injustice masquerading as injustice. And so really what he's saying to Jesus is the translation of that, what is truth, I think is he's saying, he's saying, look, in the midst of all this chaos and sin, can we really know what truth is? And even if we did, would it ever save anybody? And so he uses chaos and sin to evade the moral responsibility of acknowledging what he does know. He knows Jesus is innocent. He knows that it's a sham. And yet he's going to go with it. And he's using as an excuse the chaos and sin of the world. And that's what everybody does. Pilate is the archetypal modern man. There's a, there's a quote by Mark Twain that says, I'm not, it's not the stuff that I don't understand about the Bible that worries me, it's the stuff that I do understand that worries me. <laughs> in other words, he, in the midst of his context, where people were trying to 
throw up smoke about the Bible. He was saying, you know, basically, yes, there's a lot about the Bible that we don't know, but there are super clear things about the Bible I do understand. It's saying that I am morally imperfect, and it's saying that, that union with God requires moral perfection that I don't have, and it says that I need some sort of a moral gift from outside of myself given to me that I can wear like a cloak to be in the presence of God, like moral Kevlar. I need to put on a moral bulletproof vest to stand in the perfect holiness of God, and I don't have one. And it says that Jesus is the only solution. Jesus is, his righteousness is, the moral Kevlar. And yet, I know that if I acknowledge that, it's going to cost me. Worldly, earthly dream. That's what Mark Twain said. He wasn't willing to do it. Same with Pilate. Everybody does the same thing. If any argument that you look at against Christianity, ultimately it comes down to there's a body of evidence that they do know and it's disregarded on some small excuse, some moral evasion. There are textual variants in the New Testament, meaning... There are parts of the New Testament that are, they have two or three different witnesses and different manuscripts. Uh, we don't know what it says. There's a couple of things in the New Testament that um, are contra- seem to be contradictory. We don't have an answer to that. There's about 21 of those. And so because of that, I'm going to disregard creation and the conscious witness of the law within me and say, this is a bunch of nonsense. It is plausible deniability. It's what the world does to evade what we do know about God by pointing to the things that we don't know. What Pilate does, what we all do. We are moral evaders. And that is the world that Jesus has come into. It's these two categories. The legalists, the Pharisees, who think that they can keep the law, make themselves righteous before God, but what it really does is make them super self-righteous religionists that are, end up killing, killing people. On the other side, we see the secu- secular cynicists who say we can't know the law because of, there's all this vagueness, and because of the vagueness, we're going to disregard the things that we do know to be true. And into that self-righteous religion and moral evasion, Jesus comes and speaks peace and truth to us. Point three, Jesus speaks Peace and truth. I'm going to read, um, this is my, uh, verse 37, 37 again. And then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. This is my favorite part of the dialogue. I love this passage. It's the, it's the tone that Jesus, ha- that, that Jesus has when he's talking to Pilate. You can, you can see it. We're going to talk a lot more about Pilate next week and we get into more of the trial proper and what happens to Pilate uh, because of his refusal to take a stand. Moral evasion never works. <laughs> Moral evasion ends up dumping you out somewhere that you don't want to be and that's what we're going to talk about next week. But in, in the meantime... Throughout this, you can see how Jesus speaks to and treats Pilate. There's almost a gentleness 
in it. Uh, uh, he is speaking peace to this, this evil Gentile ruler, which surprises me. He goes to Herod on the other go- one of the other Gospels. They send Herod, Pilate sends him off to Herod, the king, who's a purely wicked man. Jesus doesn't say a word. Doesn't talk to him at all. There's no point. And then he comes back, uh, and, and, and when, in the other Gospels, when Jesus is standing before the high priests in his trial, he doesn't say a word until he's commanded by the law to speak. And, and Jesus, as the perfect law keeper, obeys the adjuration of the high priest and speaks and says, yes, I am the Son of Man. But other than that, doesn't say a word. Why is he spending so much time talking with Pilate, this Gentile evil king? And he, what he's talking about, what he says, he repeats, he repeats to Pilate, he says, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice, which is a repeat of chapter 10, a, a chapter that's talking about Jesus being the shepherd king of Israel who is calling all of his sheep to himself and that his sheep will hear his voice and his sheep will come to him. So it is in the context of kingship that we're talking about. And he's... It, He's reaching out to Pilate, this Gentile, in peace. You can almost, almost hear him say, Pilate, do you hear my voice? Do you hear it? And we know that there is supernatural stuff going on here. One of the other Gospels says that Pilate's wife has this dream. In the middle of the day, special word for dream that means vision dream, message from God dream, and she sends word to Pilate right away saying, have nothing to do with this innocent man for I've been tormented today by this dream that I've had from him, about him from God. We know that there is this press happening on Pilate. Will you hear his voice? And the answer, did he? The answer is we don't know. After 36 A.D., Pilate disappears off the scene of history. There's a riot. He kills, a couple, he kills too many people in this riot. He gets sent back to Rome. And as far as verified history of Pontius Pilate, that's the last we hear of him. The Orthodox churches, the Eastern churches, read these stories and see how his wife, Claudia, sent him this message. And they, the tradition is that she, Claudia, at least became a Christian. There's a, there's a feast day for her. June 25th is the feast of Claudia Procula, who is the wife of Pontius Pilate in the Eastern Orthodox Churches. Now, what is that means? Nothing or not, we don't know. It's, it's just tradition. It's not biblical. The Ethiopian church goes a step farther and says, Pilate did come to faith and believed. We don't know. But you know, you know what it's important for us to know? Is this. Jesus knew. Jesus knew whether or not Pilate was going to hear his voice. And whatever that outcome was, he reached out and spoke to him. There was an honest and sincere expression of of welcoming, reaching out to Pilate. Some people want to think, well, because we know that, that God has elected his people for salvation, that that must mean that uh, there's no that there that we don't have to reach out to people, or that the, the offer of the gospel is somehow not a real offer of the gospel. But this and the rest of the gospels absolutely refutes that. 
there is an honest and real invitation to salvation to everyone that goes out, even from Jesus himself who knew all things And we are lucky to not know that. <laughs> We're lucky to not know that. So what this teaches us is that we are to pronounce, we are to proclaim the gospel, we are to reach out, we are to speak peace into the lives of everyone, even especially the people who we think, <laughs> even to the worst ones. What could be, who could be worse than Pontius Pilate? Pascal? The Apostle Paul? And so the last thing we hear from Pilate in this section is Pilate gives his, he speaks this question to Jesus. What is truth? Which is really his answer to Jesus. It's a rhetorical question. It's his answer to Jesus. What is truth? We don't know. It doesn't help anyways. And then he walks outside and Jesus doesn't answer the question. But John answers the question. And that's the whole point of John's gospel is to answer that question. Jesus says, I've come to represent, to, to proclaim truth about reality. What is religious truth? And this, these, this gospel that John has given us teaches us what that is. He teaches us what the problem is. The problem of mankind is total depravity. We are absolutely sinful in and of ourselves. And he gives these pictures of the Pharisees, a self-righteous religion that's on one side, and this picture of Pilate as a morally vading on the other side, as the sexual, secular cynic on the other side, to show us that in and of ourselves we are absolutely depraved and push off the true knowledge of God in favor of these other extremes. And it pre- presents to us that the solution then is Jesus as the Savior of the world. The ironies come back in, the irony of the priests handing over Jesus to the Roman government so they could hurry off to the Passover, which is going to be obsolete by the time they get there because they have just handed over the Lamb of God to be sacrificed for the sins of the world. And, and, and John, John takes a, a minute and stops, hard stop, to say, as they are doing this, after the Jews confess, we need, to, we need him killed and we need you to do it, John stops at verse 32 and says, this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. And I read that this week, and I'm thinking about it, and I started thinking to myself, why? why? Why did they need the Romans? Why did they need crucifixion? Why couldn't they just stone him to death? Like there's a, you know, the other traditional ways for the Jews to kill people. Why, why all this trouble to include the Romans? I think some of it has to do with the lowliness of it. Some of it has to do with, uh, uh, with him being humble and, and, and humble in the sense of emptying himself of all privilege to die on the cross, not emptying himself of his divine divinity, but emptying himself of pride as, a, as, a, as an example to us. But even more than that, it's, he is fulfilling prophecy the prophecy specifically that he's fulfilling is when Jesus says, when I am lifted up, all men will look to me. So there's another irony. The Jews think by putting him on a cross, the worst punishment, they are going to make him despised. 
And instead, it turns around to Jesus and God using the cross to have all men look to Jesus. But the second prophecy is from Deuteronomy, where it says, any man who is hung on a tree is accursed of God. And Paul, he interprets that for us in Galatians, where he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And so big religious truth number one that John is answering for us, what is true, is that Jesus takes on the curse of the law for us But there's something else. One other thing that kept catching my mind as I was reading through this, and that was this guy Barabbas. It says Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. <laughs> that doesn't mean he's like a stick-up kid. It means, or he's a bank robber. It means he was, we know from the other Gospels, that he was a chief of insurrectionists. He was literally a political insurrectionist he was a zealot. He had a follower, a band of followers. He had killed someone in an insurrection in the city, the other Gospels say. And so he is now locked up. As a, he's, a, he's a murderer. He's an insurrectionist. He's a sinner. And he's locked up waiting punishment. It's good reason to believe that the two guys on either side of Jesus were his partners. They arrested the whole bunch of them. But his name, I kept thinking about his name. Who, you know, any of you who got, you know, first-year Hebrew students should all know what his name means. They don't give his first name. They only give his last name. The name is Bar, which means son of. And who can tell me what Abba means? Of the father. But it's, the, it's, not, it's, not, it's not formal name for father, Av, Avot. It's Abba, which is the intimate name. People like to say, it's the, the word daddy. That, that, there's some bad connotations that come with that, but it is the most intimate name that is given to a Christian to call God as father. And so there's pictures playing out of this sinner who is justly being condemned and held prisoner, Bar Abbas, the son of the father, and Jesus, the rightful king, the true son of God, the innocent one, takes his place as it were, and then Bar Abbas, the son of the father, is released from into freedom. And how can we not see a picture of the gospel in there? How can we not see that Jesus, as the perfect holy one, has taken the place of this man, and the only name that he is given is the name of an adopted son, son of the intimate father, released because of what Jesus has done for us. And so religious truth, number two, that John is letting us know. Number one, that we are all under the curse of the law and that Jesus has paid the curse for us through his blood and religious truth. Number two, that through Jesus' sacrifice, we are adopted by the Father and made his children. We are guilty. We deserve the sentence of death, but Jesus takes our place. And if that's not high literary art, if that's not drama, if that is not beautiful, I don't know what is. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. Um, 
Lord, we thank you that you didn't write just a book of facts for us. We didn't write a systematic theology that we could argue with, but you taught us, you have taught us these astonishing supernatural realities uh, beyond our, even our comprehension to understand through the history that you've recorded us here and the high drama of it, Lord. We thank you that Jesus has paid the penalty for our sins. We thank you that we are no longer under the curse of the law. We are no longer under the requirement to keep the law perfectly, to be and have fellowship with you. But Jesus has paid for that so that we are not under the curse of the law any longer. And we thank you that you have showed us that you have adopted us as your children and that we now relate to you as our Father. And Lord, we pray that this understanding would make us so astonished at your beauty and so grateful that we would go out and disperse throughout the church and throughout the world as humble servants who seek to share truth and to share the beauty of Jesus, Lord. Please make that so. Make us like that, Lord, for the glory of your name. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.